The Obercline Mansion, now known as Munkessy's Place, has quite a history. Murder and mayhem. They locked the doors and threw away the key. Mancussi must have found it. He opened a supper club there. Now it's the hit of the town. The mansion sits atop its own hill. You can look at least 200 yards in any direction from that hill and never gaze on anyone else's property. The only driveway up to the joint winds back and forth between 13 sets of hairpin turns. The whole drive is lined with hedgerows. If anyone ever wanted to raid this place, the cops would have a long, slow drive up to the door in full view of the house. Yes, sir, a great place for a party. The doors opened three weeks ago, but the grand opening is tonight. Quite a splash. The city hasn't seen a bash like this since before Prohibition. Everyone who is anyone, or thinks he is, is here. Even the mayor and a couple of senators are seated at the head table. There is a power in this room. The leeches of power follow it. The smoke floats lazily over the tables that dot the room. A spotlight cuts through the gloom like a knife and shines brightly on the stage. Mancusi's new son-in-law steps up to the large round mic. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the gala grand opening of Mancusi's Place, the finest in club entertainment. We present to you a gift of frolic and fun. Sequins and shine bounce onto the stage. The woman's voice, sharp as a razor, cuts through the club. A waiter calls Alicia Barston away from her table for a phone call just as the singer's crystal voice rings its last tunes. Barston, smiling, steps up to the mic. Suddenly, the fireworks outside thunder to life. Great fountains of light gush and bang. Judging from the waiter's surprised faces, the fireworks went off early. Someone's going to get it for this. Someone did. A great red stain spread across Richard Barston's crisp white shirt. The mic squeals as he pitches over onto it. Richard coughs once. A woman screams. It looks as though tonight's show is going to end a lot earlier than expected. When the main lights come on, the customers decide to move. Exits suddenly become quite popular. Waiters and cooks run side by side with the more elegant crowd. The party comes to a disappointing end. Welcome to RPG Storytime the channel where we take stories generated out of role-playing games and narrate them in short, digestible segments. Today we begin another Gangbusters adventure with The Vanishing Investigator. The module is by Tracy Ray Hickman, and the story is game-mastered and written by Jeff MacArthur. 10.30 a.m. Private Investigator Dylan Griebel sits in his office across from a woman still in mourning. The veil couldn't completely hide her eyes. They're the kind you could get lost in. Big, dark pools that a man could kill for. The question was whether someone already did. I want to hire you, she said with steel-like confidence. I want the man responsible for my husband's death. She was Alicia Mencussi, only a couple days from becoming Alicia Barston, the daughter of gang boss Enrico Mencussi, and betrothed to Richard Barston, formerly of the Bureau of Investigation, now formerly alive. He had been murdered the night before at her father's estate where he was to announce that he and Alicia had been married to a party of Lakefront's most elite members of society. The killing had been public, shot while on stage speaking to the gathered throng. The police were investigating the murder, but Alicia wasn't so much interested in justice being served as revenge. Her family could do it, and they were willing to pay handsomely. This made Dylan uncomfortable, but jobs had been a little scarce recently, and whiskey didn't buy itself. So he was taking the job, 
but the first order of business was to get every bit of pertinent information from the client. What she was willing to share and how she shared it was as important as the clues themselves. He had been shot with a thirty-eight revolver from across the room, an odd choice for an assassination weapon from a distance. Every time a thirty-eight had been used that Dylan knew of had been up close or because it was the only choice of weapon. It had belonged to Nathan Sykes, Barston's old partner. They had worked together until about a decade ago when Barston let a killer go that they had had cornered. Alicia didn't know who he was, but it was enough to get Barston drummed out of the bureau and placed in prison for three years. Sykes was demoted. Looks like he landed on top, though, Dylan said. You were going to marry him. Alicia blushed beneath her veil. She explained that Barston worked his way back up in society, and they had met last month. He waited a whole month to propose? What took him so long? Dylan asked. Dylan couldn't read her expression, a major disadvantage to his work. He wanted to know how she felt about the comment, but she didn't respond verbally. So he tried something else. What was he doing when you met? Escorting me through the factory. As soon as he was assigned to me, it was like lightning to my heart. I meant as a profession. He was one of your father's security guards? A security guard at a shoe factory. You're serious? Dylan asked. He truly needed clarification. The statement seemed like it should be sarcasm. Yes, my father and Moose were inspecting the place, and he wanted someone watching me in case any of his enemies came by. He worked his way up in society. To a security guard at a shoe factory, Dylan said. Their inspection took longer than expected, so Dick and I had a long time to chat. Dylan's head slowly tilted to one side, a habit he had when in deep thought, as if he was dropping all the blood to the relevant part of his brain. He could tell why Barrington had snagged up this woman as quickly as he could. However, unless he looked like Douglas Fairbanks, she was way out of his league. But why did she fall for him so quickly? Or more to the point, did she? Dylan toyed with the thought that she was helping her father trap a federal agent to kill him. But then why would she hire a private investigator to find the killer? His silent staring was unsettling Alicia, and she squirmed a little. Do you have any questions for me? she asked. No, Dylan said. He didn't want to ask her any more questions while unable to read her face. If he tried to ask them again, he wouldn't get an honest expression, but rather an annoyed look at having to repeat herself. But I do want to speak with your father. Is he at his estate? Yes. Here is the address. I know the address, Dylan said. Everyone knew the address. For decades, the old Oberkline mansion was the symbol of wealth, power, and mystery through all of Lakefront City. Now that Moncussie had taken over, it would probably maintain that reputation. The mansion itself was on the crest of a hill just north of the center of the property. Rumors had it that the stone and iron fence around it was electric. Trees rimmed the property and formed a small private forest on the south end. A river cut through one corner of the property and a waterfall dropped into a pool near the south boundary of the plot. The rest of the grounds were rolling, manicured lawns. Pretty and practical. One couldn't get within 200 yards of the house without being seen. Dylan noticed a dozen guards on and around the roof serving as lookouts. As the car rolled to a stop at the front entrance, the door was opened and a handful of guards escorted him inside then upstairs to the third floor. Along the way, they passed quite a few people, most of whom seemed to be working. Something big was going on, though Dylan didn't dare ask what. They came upon the large, opulent office at the top. 
Enrico Mancusi sat behind his large oak desk. His media assistant stood at his side. This was likely the man Alicia referred to as Moose. Detective Dylan Griebel, Mancusi said amiably. My daughter told me you would be coming by. Please excuse the chaos of my accommodations. We're cleaning up after last night's mess. I heard you lost a son-in-law, Dylan said. Soon to be, yeah, but not no more. Tragic. He and I were just starting to warm up to each other, too. So what can I do for you? Can you describe last night? Dylan asked. Uh, sure, Mencuzzi said, and he explained that he was in an adjoining room speaking with two gentlemen, Tolino and O'Connor. Dylan recognized the names as the leaders of the two most recent rival syndicates. A meeting at Mencuzzi's place most likely meant he was trying to make peace between them. In any case, he said that the door was open and he heard the shot. He ran out to see that Barston's body was sprawled out on the floor. His daughter ran to him. She was inconsolable. The medics were there in five minutes and took the body away. I think it helped poor Alicia, because she calmed down a little. Did you see the... Wait, did you say the medics were there in five minutes? More or less, why? Dylan thought about how long it took him to get there. The driveway alone took a minute to drive up. That didn't account for calling the ambulance and the time it took to navigate the hairpin turns up the hill. The wealthy sometimes moved themselves far away from aid. Dylan said, Never mind, and switched to asking about Barston's past. I knew he was a former Fed, he said. A disgraced one. I found that out after we took over the shoe factory. I didn't see any reason to get rid of him for that. But I didn't know trouble was going to be following him. What kind of trouble? Dylan asked. That's your job, Mankesi said. I'd have put my money on Sykes, his old partner. It was his gun, but he was cleared last night by police. So someone who knew their history stole his gun and used it on his old partner? Dylan asked. Mancusi leaned back in his chair and looked at Moose. Check out this guy. At least their money isn't going to total waste. Who did Barston let go ten years ago? Dylan asked. Mancusi eyed him awkwardly. Dylan pressed. He was drummed out of the bureau for letting someone go. Do you know who it was? Mencussi looked at Moose, then back at Dylan and shrugged his shoulders. Dylan was going to ask more questions, but Mencussi told Moose to take Dylan down to the club to show Dylan the scene of the crime. It was his way of saying the interview was over. Along the way, Dylan tried to speak with Moose, but he got nothing from him except for one notable reaction. When Dylan brought up Alicia, Moose took in a bitter breath and looked away. The club was below the first floor, its balcony pouring out over the steep side of the hill. Police tape ran across the entrance, though Moose let Dylan through unimpeded. Some of the dishes were still out. Some broken glasses lay in pieces where people had dropped them at the sound of the gunshot. Looks like everyone was here, Dylan said. Why wasn't I invited? Everyone who was someone was here, Moose said. You aren't someone. Dylan looked around and found the chalk outline of the gun left at the table near the back. Strangely, that wasn't near the stairs. In order to get to them, the killer would have had to run through the crowd and go up. Behind this table was a pair of double doors that led to the kitchen. Moose saw Dylan working this out and said, Killer went through there, then out the side. Which of the kitchen staff saw him? Dylan asked. Moose shrugged. Dylan pushed through the kitchen. He was surprised to see that it wasn't part of the crime scene. Kitchen staff was moving about, cleaning up the place that was abandoned the night before after all the chaos. One man was ordering everyone around. So Dylan went to him, waiting for a moment for the man to take a pause so he could ask a question. The man did stop only for a moment, 
glancing over at Dylan and asking, What do you want? I want to know what the killer looked like, Dylan said. Don't we all, pal? The chef said. He ran through here last night, Dylan said. Someone must have seen him. No one ran through here, the man said. I was standing right over there directing everyone. The chef pointed at a spot that was in full view of the double doors. Police even asked the staff last night and no one saw him go through here. Without waiting for any more questions, the man left Dylan and returned to directing his staff. Dylan returned to the table where the gun had been found. He looked around the room. The stage was in clear sight. He could picture someone standing here and firing. But was there somewhere else that could have actually happened? He couldn't find it. The only thing that was close were the restrooms, one on each side. Moose asked impatiently if Dylan was almost done. Just a moment, Dylan said. I gotta wiggle the old weasel. He pushed open the bathroom door and went in. One could almost host a party in the lavatory. Immediately upon entering, he was greeted by a wall of windows on the left and a row of marble sinks before him. Around the corner to the right were three toilet stalls, all of which looked as though they could contain a throne. Dylan's shoes clacked against the stone floor so loud that he knew Moose could hear them, so he walked over to the stalls, opened one of them, then closed it, and took off his shoes. He then looked closely around the bathroom, first scanning the marble walls and floor. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. He studied the ceiling, expecting to find a trap door of some sort, but found nothing. He opened each stall door and pressed against the back walls. Still nothing. After a thorough search, he knew that Moose would come looking, and Dylan didn't want the lug to find him in his socks. So he put his shoes back on and walked to the front of the restroom. He washed his hands in the sink, pressing down on the bowls and feeling around the mirrors but finding nothing. At last, ready to walk back out, he checked himself in the full-length mirrors he saw to the left when he first came in. Straightening his outfit, he suddenly noticed something. The caulking was missing along one side of the mirrors. He reached into the crack and gently pulled. The mirror swung open like a doorway, revealing a dimly lit stairway that led down beyond. He peered down and spotted plush carpet at the bottom, likely a speakeasy. The club was on this floor and the private club was below. Made sense. He wanted to go down to investigate further, but he heard Moose's big feet clomping toward the door, so he closed the mirror and walked toward the exit. The bathroom door swung into his face. Ow! Dylan shouted. You always treat guests like this, Moose? You take too long. Moose said. Yeah, you might want to light a candle, Dylan said, and he walked past the large thug. As Dylan was leaving, he tried to get as good a look on the other side of the mansion. The secret level he had found would be underground with no visible exits. Was the killer still down there, he wondered? Or had they waited for everything to die down, then come back up and sneaked out in the middle of the night? Dylan would have to find out. This has been a presentation of RPG Storytime Gangbusters, a playthrough of Death in Spades by Tracy Hickman. Tune in next time to hear the continuation of the story. Subscribe to the channel to hear more tales of RPG games, or check out our YouTube channel. The link is in the description. You can also read books by the writer and game master of these stories by going to bandwagononline.com. We hope you enjoy it, and happy gaming, everybody. <laughs>